culture is sending us all kinds of messages about this thing that we call love. And so all of the messages, uh, all of these messages in our lives as they come to us and as we're bombarded with them, they all have an impact on how we think about love and and what we come to believe about love. And so we're going to take three weeks uh, in this series um, to talk about relationships and to talk about love. And uh, really it's, it's biblical instruction. Uh, about love today, just kind of in general, a broad sweeping view of love. Uh, And and then uh, next week, uh, we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, Actually, it's two weeks from today. Next week is just going to be a little bit of an in-between week. So on the 15th, we'll talk about marriage. And then the week after that, uh, we'll talk about being single. So biblical views on love, marriage, and being single. Okay? Now, some of you are already planning to skip church if you're married on the single week and if you're single on the married week. Let me tell you right up front, this is unacceptable. (laughs) Okay? Because every message is going to have woven into it truths that you need to hear regardless of your stage of life, okay? Uh, that's true today. Uh, we're going to talk about love in general today. It's, it's going to be uh, for everyone. And so don't miss a single week of this, of this series, okay? Um, all right. So I, you know, I was really, uh, I asked uh, several weeks ago for some help on Facebook. And I asked, uh, you know, just put it out there into the, uh, the digital world. What are some messages that the culture is telling us about love uh, that, uh, that you guys feel like are lies. And I got lots and lots of responses from that. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, what we're going to do today is I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the classic love chapter in the Bible. This is uh, for, for centuries and centuries been read at weddings. And uh, I performed two weddings last weekend, uh, two in one weekend. And so I was just in the mood of love. And I was thinking about this, 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 uh, this message. And I was thinking about my own wedding 11 short years ago and all of this good stuff. And I thought, what better passage to speak from than 1 Corinthians 13, okay? Uh, so turning your Bibles there. Uh, we, we don't have the live event on the, the U version for those of you that are looking for it. We just didn't uh, get that done this week. So we'll, we'll do our best to get that done every week, but that's not available to you this week. Um, But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, let's read it together. You can follow along with me, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has to say to us about this thing called love. Are you guys ready? Okay, you ready? All right. All right, let's do it. 1 Corinthians 13, some of you have this memorized, and you could say it along with me, but I won't ask you to do that. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast but I do not have love, then I gain nothing. For love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others, and it is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. 
But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. For where there, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For we see only a reflection as in a mirror right now, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's a great, great passage of Scripture. But I want to uh, tell you right up front today that while this, is seri- this series is focused on relationships, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of love and, and sort of romantic love and all of those kinds of things, I-, I feel like that in order to really understand this passage, we have to understand something right up front. And that is, this passage is not about romantic love. In other words, I would argue that when we read it at a wedding, we're taking it just a little bit out of context because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has just finished talking about spiritual gifts that are being used in the body and used in unity in the body of Christ. And then right after this, he goes on to talk about their worshiping life together. In other words, this isn't just a chapter about romantic love that seems sort of really misplaced between spiritual gifts and and our worshiping life together as a a church. But but rather, I would say that Paul's goal ultimately is not to give us a textbook or not to give us a poem on romantic love, but ultimately his goal is to give us a framework for our communal life together as a church. And all of a sudden, this took a dramatic left turn, right? And you guys are like, what? What? Now, that's not to say that we can't take away from this passage principles that will help us to understand the nature of love. But we have to understand Paul's ultimate goal. His goal was not to inform you if you find yourself in a a romantic relationship, whether dating or married or engaged or wherever you're at along that continuum. Paul's goal is not to give you the best advice. Paul's goal ultimately, again, is for all of us. What does it look like for us as a community, first of all, to use our gifts together? And then Paul says, you can have all the gifts in the world, right? You can have faith that will move a mountain. You can have all of these things. But if you don't ultimately have love in your your communal life together, then ultimately you have nothing and ultimately you have gained nothing. And so Paul is really talking to us about the communal life of the church together. But we have to keep this in mind as we begin to take these principles about love in general and then apply it to our relationships of of romantic love. Does that make sense? So, So Paul's goal is not romantic love. It's a broader love that we can then take principles and apply to our relationships. That's what we want to try to do this morning. And so today, I, I want to do a both and. I'm going to speak to you, if, whether, whether, whether you're single or married or dating or where, wherever you're at in your relationship status, like whatever that little part of your Facebook profile says, it doesn't matter today. This message is for you. Because ultimately, it's all about, we're going we're gonna to make broader applications to our communal life together as a church. So we're going to seek to do both. 
And the way I want to structure this is, again, inside of this chapter are all kinds of messages about love. It sends all sorts of of implicit messages to us about the nature of love, what love looks like, in the same way that every time you watch a movie, every time you read a book, it's sending to you implicit messages about the nature of love. Now, some are sort of rather in your face, chick flick. Others are more subtle, uh, transformers, you know, but it's all ultimately woven in there is this theme of love, and it's trying to send a message to help us think correctly about it according to culture. And so what we want to do is I want to take three messages that the culture teaches us about love and compare those to the Bible and say, are those biblical views of love or what does the Bible say in relation to that cultural message? Okay, so that's what what I want to do this morning. And the first cultural message that we get uh, coming to us all the time is that love is a feeling. Love is a feeling. That's the message that comes to us from, from, the, from the culture all the time. It, it wants, culture wants to tell us that love is primarily based and founded and, and has its roots in how I feel. What is the emotional response to this person, this thing, this, this activity? Uh, if I have a proper sort of emotional response to this, then I could say that I love it, which has meant that we can love everything from the experience of a roller coaster oh man i love that or we could eat papa john's and say man i love pizza or we might meet this special girl and say i think i love her it's all based on sort of what is my emotional response to this person this activity or this thing okay and so love what so the culture wants to tell us that that the love doesn't go any deeper than that if it feels good do it. If it feels right, if you have a good emotional response, if it picks you up, then, then go ahead and do it. You love it. Do what feels right. And what, we, what we've talked about and, and the way that we framed this is we have framed love as something that we fall into. We're swept into it. We're swept off of our feet. We fall in love. The only problem with that is that given enough time, where the newness wears off and that emotional feeling begins to rub off, that really strong emotional sensation that you had right at the very beginning when it's no longer true because you fell in love, you can just as easily fall out of love. This is the cultural message. If, if all of our understanding of love is based on our emotional response, then we can easily fall into it and we can just as easily fall out of it. And so that is exactly what we see happening in our culture. So culture tells us to follow your heart, do what feels right, and then you'll, you'll fall into love, you'll fall out of love. The problem with follow, following your heart and making your emotions the center, the epicenter of, and the foundation of our love is that sometimes our heart can mislead us. Follow your heart, man. But sometimes our heart can mislead us. Sometimes our emotional feelings, well, actually all, of our, all the time, our emotional feelings are dynamic. They change all the time. And so if we're always looking to our emotions to tell us what we are in love with or what we no longer love, then our love life will be a roller coaster. Yeah, but I love roller coasters. 
except for when it deals with, with uh, perspectives and attitudes of the heart. And it's heartbreak over and over again. And so love is a feeling, is what the culture tells us. But let me, let me argue this. The best, the best that romantic love can do, this love is a feeling attitude, the very best that that can do is point us in a direction, right? So, so if you're here today and you just started dating that special someone, and you're like, you have all like this emotional response, and you're like really excited, and you have all this sort of like, flood of emotions going and you feel really in love, I don't want to discount that. I don't want to discredit that. That's part of the, the, the fun of falling in love. That's part of the fun of, of walking through that love continuum with a significant other that ultimately leads to a commitment of marriage. But, so I don't want to discredit that. But the best that that can do is point us in the right direction of what Paul is actually talking about. The best that this sort of initial romantic uh, sort of feeling of love can do is be a signpost for the depth of love that Paul is calling us to. Not only in our romantic relationships, but also in our communal life together. And again, we're going to make applications for church and for um, the, the couple kind of love, the romantic kind of love. So the cultural message is that love is a feeling. The biblical message is that love is a commitment. And I think with all of these things that we're going to look at today, we need to look no further than the person of love, Jesus Christ himself. Because if love was only a feeling, and if the foundation of our love was our emotional response to a situation or an activity or a person or a thing, then Jesus would have never gone to the cross out of love. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Lord God the Father, if there is any other way, then let this cup pass from me. He didn't feel like being tortured. But he was committed to obedience to God and utterly committed to you and I in love. That through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he might bind himself to us so that all we have to do is respond to his great love. So we need to look no further than Jesus himself. The love ultimately is not a feeling, but rather the biblical message is that love is a commitment. And, and let's look at, again, verse 4 through 7. This is the section of, of chapter 13 that says love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. What it does is it makes some really big promises, right? I mean, you read through that list, and, and, and you, you read it, and you just feel, begin to feel the weight of the commitment of, that it would take to, over, to, to actually live in these ways toward a significant other. Patience, kindness, love does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, even when the truth is difficult. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If my life were held up to that list as a standard, then let me just say that my resume of love sucks. And probably yours does too. Right? I mean, I mean, this is heavy promises of what it means to love someone and be in relationship with someone. And, and what happens is that romantic love that's based on a feeling will make these promises out of the emotional energy of the feeling of love. 
I feel so in love with you that I promise to never be angry with you. I promise to, to never envy. I promise to never boast. I promise to never be self-seeking, right? We, we have all these strong emotional feelings that lead us to these promises. But those feelings will not lead you to fulfill those promises. They won't. If all you have is the feeling of love, that sort of leads you and motivates you to make those promises, the motivating factor is not enough to sustain the truth of the promise. That takes commitment. So love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. Love is a commitment. The feeling points us in the right direction, right? You don't ask a girl out by saying, Six months from now or a year from now, I will be very committed to you. Will you go to a movie with me? You don't say that, right? The romantic love, the emotional feeling, points us in the direction, gets us started in the right road. But the problem is that culture says what gets us started is, the, in fact, the end. That's the end of the road and the foundation. But the, but the Bible takes us much further And says, that's okay, let's start with that romantic love, but let's use the romantic love as a signpost to the true nature of love, which is commitment. The commitment that Jesus showed to us on the cross. Even though he didn't feel like going there, he went there out of great love for us. So love is a commitment. To live in these ways towards someone else requires commitment to that other person. And allowing our feelings to dictate our actions is dangerous because our feelings are always dynamic. Our feelings are always dynamic. In other words, there will be times when you don't feel like loving your spouse. There will be times when you don't feel like loving someone in this church. But the commitment, if we've committed to that person in marriage, then it says, regardless of how I feel... I have committed to love you in these ways. And so I'm going to do my best to do that and fulfill those promises. But if I were only relying on feelings, then I would be like, I don't feel like I love you anymore. And in fact, I feel like I love this other person. And so I'm out. And the trail of collateral damage follows behind. Because all I'm ever doing is chasing my feelings. Rather than allowing my feelings to point me in the right direction, then commit to a person and stay. Make sense? So love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. In fact, um, Paul isn't just talking about, again, Paul isn't just talking about romantic love, but he's walking us through the shared life of Christians in, in their worshiping life together, their communal life together, and he's saying to us, we need to be committed to one another. that it isn't just between you and your significant other, but but rather it's sort of this communal truth as well that Paul wants to say, you may not feel like loving someone in this community, but if you've committed yourself to this church, if you've committed yourself to, to worshiping as part of this community, then we sort of have this responsibility to be committed to the community as a whole. Now, that doesn't mean you have to like everybody. It just means that you need to be committed to the, to the community as a whole. Paul is talking to us about the communal life of the church together. And uh, what, this is a, a truth that I share um, with, with most of my uh, couples that come to see me for premarital counseling. 
I, I tell them this very thing about love is not a, a feeling, love is a commitment, because lots of people, when they're engaged, will come to me all starry-eyed and I'll say, why do you want to marry this person? And they'll, just, they'll say, well, I just feel so in love. And uh, I will say, that's not enough. And they'll say, what do you mean? <laughs> it's, what do you mean? It's not enough. And I'll say, marriage takes commitment. It's not just a, a feeling. And in fact, then what I tell them about is the stages of love. And I want to tell you guys about the stages of love. The first stage of love is this romantic love, this first infatuation. It's, this th- it's the signpost that points us in the right direction, right? That's the first stage. Many people will come to me in premarital counseling still in stage one right? They're, the other person can do no wrong. They sit on a pedestal. They're like, they, they blink really fast when they look at each other. I mean, it's, it's all very gross. Um, <laughs> you guys thought I was going to say sweet. It's all just very gross, you know? And you're just like, wow, you know, you guys are just lost in this feeling of love. And so what I tell them is you are in stage one. And, and I, this is a little bit of a downer. It's always a downer when I say this, but I feel a responsibility to be truthful to premarital, to, to premarital couples that come in to see me. And I say, right now, you're stuck in stage one. The very, the, the classic times for divorce in our culture are two years and seven years. You, you think about any of your friends that have been divorced and how many of them are at year two Two and a half, year and a half, maybe three. And then they, if they make it through three years, then they'll make it to seven, typically. But right around seven is another classic time for divorce. Now, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that I can t- tell you and sort of unravel the entire, uh, all the dynamics of divorce in our culture. But part of the reason is because at year two, that, that stage one love starts to wear off. And the feeling starts going away. And that emotional charge of being together and, and, and setting up an apartment together and living life together and doing all these sorts of married things, around year two, it starts to wear off. And what people do is because we've understood from the culture that love is, is equal to how we feel, then around year two, we look around and say, I'm bored because I don't feel in love anymore. And so I'm out. And then the classic time, seven years, is those couples that are really, really, really in love when they get married. And they, last, they, they allow that stage one to last seven years. But it's the same transition that they're trying to go through. And when you try to transition into stage one, from stage one, romantic infatuation, and move into a deep rooted commitment to one another that says, I see you for who you really are and all of your faults and all of your little quirks, but I still choose to love you because God has given me to you. I have committed to you. You move into stage two, that will last a lifetime. And what happens is sometimes that transition can be pretty bumpy. And so if I've only understood love to be a feeling and things get a little bit bumpy around two, year two and year seven, then I, I'm out. And that's what so many people in our culture do. And so classic times for divorce. You know the new classic time for divorce? I'm not, I don't want to spend our whole 
morning talking about love, talking about divorce, but, but another classic time that's popping up in our culture is 25 years of marriage. That's another classic time for couples to separate. Some of you have experienced that. You're grown, you're married, you have kids, your parents have been married 25 years and they've divorced. And the, the reason for that is I think very similar. They've poured their whole life into their kids. Now they're empty nesters. They look at each other and say, who are you? And they've got to move back into stage two. It gets a little bumpy and they get out. But biblically, love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. Because you will never live in the ways that 1 Corinthians calls us to without a deep-seated commitment to this other person. And so we move into stage two. And what's really interesting is that when you move into stage two, stage one tags along. So you have this, you have simultaneously this deep-seated commitment for one another, but you also have the, the fun of the romantic love. This is the, this is the couple that's been married 60 years, still laughs and uh, holds hands and, and all of this stuff, and you say, how in the world did they do that? They moved from stage one to stage two that lasted them a lifetime, and stage one t- t- tagged along. Isn't that cool? So if you're here today, I encourage you to move into that second stage. But the problem is, if we're all just realistic, there's some of you here today that you've started to lose the feeling of love for your spouse. And you're flirting with a coworker, And you're walking on very thin ice and very dangerous ground. <clears throat> you may not be to the stage yet where you're flirting with a coworker, but you may be to the point in your relationship where you become so frustrated and feeling so out of love with your spouse that your thoughts about your spouse in here are all negative. And you think poorly of the person that you've committed your life to. You are also walking on thin ice and thin ground. And so my, my call to you today and part of your next step that we'll talk about later is to recommit to your spouse. Recommit your love to your spouse. Move back into stage two and see stage one tag along. That's where some of you are at today and what God is calling you to do. But, you know, we said we would apply this to the life of the church overall. And some of you, your feeling about this church is starting to fade. You know, we get lots and lots of feedback that people come the first time and they're like, this is the church that I have been waiting for my entire life. And, and I think to myself, they will be gone in six months. Now, why, am I just a cynical old pastor or, or what? The problem is, is that when people base their decision of a church that is so emotionally charged that you come on one Sunday and I happen, maybe I had a good day and actually did a good sermon that day and, and you're like, man, this is awesome. The preaching was like relevant and they like talked about Jesus and stuff and the music was great and this is the church I've been waiting for my entire life. But some of you are there but that feeling is beginning to fade because there's no perfect church. And, and you, start, you start looking around and you start seeing the flaws that we have as a church because we have them. We know about them. We're trying to fix them. But you begin to see flaws. That feeling starts to fade 
or maybe someone offended you and you have one foot out the door already. See, Paul's message to us is not primarily about romantic couples, but about the communal life of Christians. So we also must walk through the stages together as a light in, the, in community life. In other words, you need to walk through this, this stage of love, not just with your romantic significant other, but also with your, your church community, where you might first have that feeling, this church is awesome. You need to move from stage stage one into stage two where you're committed yourself to a local community to serve and to get after it and to see the kingdom of God come in Fort Collins and around the world through the ministry of that church. But some of you, when you lose that feeling in a church, you exit. And you may even have a, have a, a, um, a pattern of divorce in your life. And the way that you see church and the way that you see relationships is exactly the same. This is not easy to hear, but it is a poor sermon that gives no offense. Right? And so you, you're, you're, you have this habit in your life. It's playing out not only in your personal life, but in your church life. And, and so you, you, you never get to the point where you're committed to a local community because the stage, the, the feeling goes away. And you've never committed to embody love in that community through patience and kindness and all the others. Chances are, if you're here today, you've lost the feelings of of love and infatuation for Emmaus Road. You've got one foot out. You're like, this is the last chance. Uh, You know, there's this other church that seems really cool over here. I may go over there. If If you have one foot out the door here, I can guarantee you it won't be very long before you have one foot out the door there. It is time to stop the hop. And it is time for some of you, you may have one foot out the door, you see the flaws of Emmaus Road, and it is time for you to put both feet in the door, settle in, commit, begin to serve, and be part of the solution and not the problem. And if you're mad at me for saying it, don't be mad at me. Be mad at God. He wrote it. Okay? Send God an email, not me. I'm not sure what his address is, but you can come up with something. Just compose it, and he'll get it. Okay? That's good. That's good theology right there. That wasn't in my notes. That's just the Holy Spirit giving me wisdom. Okay. <laughs> okay. What's the second cultural thing? Right? Culture says love is about me and my benefit. It's about me and my benefit. That's what the culture tells us that love is all about. And so, if I were, if I were the culture giving you the message, preaching you the message, it would sound something like this. Women, marry someone who is rich so you have a good inheritance. Men, marry a babe so you have a great sex life and can show her off. That probably sounds pretty familiar based on all the messages that we get from culture because culture says love is about you and the the benefit that you receive from this relationship. So marry a doctor so you have a status in the community. Marry, uh, you know, marry a hot lady. I mean, you, you name it. It's just, it goes across the board about how you might benefit from this love relationship. Okay? All around is this message that love is about what I can get 
as a result of this love transaction. But Paul and the Bible don't talk about what you can get as a benefit based on the love transaction or the love relationship. What the Bible talks about over and over and over again is that in the, the love relationship is not about personal gain and benefit. It's about emptying our lives into this other person. Again, we go right to Jesus in the cross. What, what did Jesus gain by being tortured on the cross? He emptied himself of everything, first to become human, and then second on the cross. He emptied himself of everything to display his great love for us, that in emptying himself, he might be filled up by God the Father and through the power of the resurrection. Love is not about what you can get out of the transaction or the relationship. Love is about how we are committed to emptying ourselves into the other person. Are you with me, church? This is the biblical picture of what Paul is talking about. And he says this over and over again. Again, in these four verses, love is patient and kind and all of these things. We promise and we commit to empty myself of pride and envy because love does not envy and love is not proud. I promise to empty myself of giving up so easily and my need for immediacy because love is patient and love perseveres. I empty myself of anger and my need and desire for revenge because love is not easily angered and love keeps no record of wrongs. We could go all the way through the list. Love, true love, empties ourselves into the other person. It does not seek to see what we can get out. Now, I know this isn't entirely practical, and it's a bit extreme. But what if you were to come to church to empty yourself out for the benefit of others and then depend on the presence of God to fill you back up? Or what if you were to empty yourself for the benefit of your significant other depending on God himself to fill you back up. True love empties. And yet, when we, go, when we check out a spouse, how many times is our attitude, what could I gain through relationship with them? Or when we go to church, we say, you know, I was just never fed in that church. Perhaps you were never fed because you were never emptied. Perhaps you were never fed because you were already full because you refused to empty. See, we go around to different churches taking, taking, taking so full that we can't be filled anymore. And so we say, you know, that church, I was never fed there. But in order to be fed, we first have to be emptied. 
And that's the beauty of the relationship because some of you are like, well, I'm in a great marriage and I really feel like I have a lot of personal benefit out of, out of being married to my best friend. That's the beauty of a God-honoring relationship. As two people empty their lives into the other person, they are simultaneously being emptied and filled up. Emptied and filled up with one another, committed to one another. That's the beauty. But that, and that's, this is also, this is a side note and getting into next week, but this is why needy people aren't good candidates to be married. If you are needy, you're not ready to get married. Because if you're needy, you're only going to seek to be, to gain out of this relationship. You've got to be full and confident in who you are in Christ, who God has created you to be so that you can give your life to someone else. If two needy people get married, it is not going to last long because they will continually be trying to take from someone that has nothing to give. And if I'm continually trying to take from someone that has nothing to give, that's wrong on both sides of the transaction. But if both of us are filled up, that we can empty our lives into one another, then that's the beauty of a God-honoring marriage and relationship. Now, that's a preview of next week, okay? That's a preview of next week. What I want to say today is that love does not seek. What can I gain? But love always empties. What would happen if you were to come to church or go into your relationship to be emptied, to empty yourself into the, into, for the benefit of others, depending on the presence of God, to fill you up? And how many times do we judge the quality of a relationship or a church community by what I get out of it? And I've already spoke to that, but that's a good question to ask yourself. How many times do I judge the quality of a relationship or the church community first based on what I get out of it? So the cultural message is love is about me and my benefit. The Bible says it's about emptying. Um, the third cultural message I want to give you is this. Love is fleeting. Love is fleeting. Is this helpful, by the way? Cultural message, love is fleeting. Uh, if you were following your Hollywood news this week, you would have known and realized two major events in Hollywood happened this week. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes are now divorced. Tomcat is no more. <laughs> I didn't make up Tomcat. That's just what they're called. Okay, so you probably heard that. And uh, this, is, this marks the end of Tom Cruise's third marriage. And anytime news like this, this comes, they interview the stars, you know, how are you doing after the divorce and all this stuff. What do you always hear? This is what you always hear. I have no regrets. I still love them. We're still friends. I have no doubt that we were meant to be together for as long as it lasted. Okay, so that's the first Hollywood news. Tomcat is no more. Second on your Hollywood uh, agenda, if you're in the know, you will know that Megan Fox is now pregnant. I thought there would be a rousing applause. Okay, well, Megan Fox is now pregnant with her boyfriend, significant other, Brian Austin Green. Uh, When she was interviewed about how she feels about this pregnancy, she said this, I truly feel like he's my soulmate. I don't want to sound corny or cliche, but I do believe that we are destined to live this part of our lives together. Love is fleeting. Love is fleeting. So, so, so why, I mean, why would I 
commit for a lifetime? Or, or why wouldn't I honor sort of this season that we had together? Love is fleeting. That's, that's the cultural message that you get over and over. Hollywood wants you to believe that love never lasts. The Bible wants to communicate that love is one of the only lasting things. Hollywood wants you to believe that love is never lasts, but the Bible wants us to understand that love is one of the only lasting things. So often, the moral demands of the Christian life are given to us as a duty. Hard and unrealistic rules that you must continually strive to meet, but in fact never will, right? So this is how the Christian life is communicated. Here's a set of rules. The rules are found in the Bible. You can't really do it, but you just have to do your best. Right? That's how the Christian life is is often communicated. What Paul wants to do is Paul always frames the present in relation to the future. And so Paul says, this is the picture of God's future. It's full of love and joy and delight. And so if this is what God's future looks like, let's begin practicing for the future right now. Let's frame our lives in the present according to the future that God has already laid out and that God has planned and that God has sealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says our present life in Christ must be framed by the future that God has for us and in that future is joy, delight, and love. So Paul's encouragement to us is not to live with a set of rules that, 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 that sit around our back and weigh us down, but rather Paul's encouragement to us is to live according to God's future, to live your life now in a way that anticipates the future. But so often we say Here's the set of rules from the Bible and other sources. Let's place them on our backs. Let's let them weigh, our de- weigh us down and just do our best and try to get into heaven. That's the message that we're often told. And, and what this is, the set of rules as it weighs down on our back and as we communicate this great love of Jesus, don't you want a heavy backpack too? If you accept Jesus, you'll have a set of rules that you'll have to bury, like you'll have to burden, you'll have to carry as a burden for the rest of your life. Isn't that great? Would you like to be in the club? No? Why not? Okay, you guys, you guys, sarcasm, y'all. Lighten up. Some of you are like, oh, where's he going, you know? This, when I have this, when I have this, when I'm carrying the weight of the rules on my back, what I communicate is I'm against this, and I'm against this, and I'm against that. If you love Jesus, you have to be against this and against that. And if you love Jesus and you're a Nazarene and you're a Baptist and you're a Methodist, then you have to be against all these other things. What Paul says is why wear the backpack? Let's frame our lives not not in, in perspective of what we're against, but let's frame our lives in what we're for as we head toward God's certain future. Let's frame our lives right now for the future. And what Paul says is there's three things that that point us to the future that God has in store for us. Faith, hope, and love. Because what, what, what essentially Paul says is that faith trusts God for everything. That if I frame my current life in perspective of the future that God has already planned, What that does is it gives me faith in the the midst of every circumstance because I know how it's all playing out. I can trust God for everything. 
So don't take control. Just place your trust in him. And when you do that, it's called faith. And that points us to the future. And then hope, which looks ahead to the certainty of God's future. Did you know that hope is not the same as wishful thinking? Wishful thinking is like, man, I wish this would be over. Or I wish this, or I wish that. Hope is grounded in the certainty of God's future that is proven in the resurrection. And so faith points us to the future. Hope points us to the certainty of God's future. And then love, which is already, which will, uh, and love, which will know as it is known and embrace as it has already been embraced. All of these sorts of things point us to the future. And what, what Paul says is now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But then he says this, the greatest of these is love. Now, why would he say that? Because when the, the fullness comes, right, he says now we're, we're sort of partial. We know in part. We, 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 we do all these things in part. When the completeness comes, that is when we experience all the fullness of the presence of God in God's new world, we won't need any faith. We won't need any hope. But love will last into God's great world. There's an old, old hymn that says this line, and I love it. It speaks directly to this. It says, Faith will vanish into sight. Hope will be emptied into delight. And love will shine more bright. English majors, I know it should have said brightly, but work with me, okay? Faith will vanish into sight. Hope will be emptied into delight. And love will shine more bright. Paul says these three things point us into God's future, but the only, one of the only lasting things is love because faith won't be necessary anymore. We, want, we will no longer have a need for hope when we experience God's complete new world, but love will shine all the more brightly. And so our lives must be centered on God who is love, for love is one of the only lasting things. Hollywood says, love is fleeting. The Bible says, love is one of the few lasting things in our world. And then Paul lists, it, lists some things. He said, prophecy? Why would we need prophecy in God's new world? Tongues? What good is speaking in tongues when we'll all understand everyone at once? And special knowledge? Why would we need special knowledge when we all shall know everything that we can know and everything that we need to know? We were just in a, in a um, series on Colossians. We sort of ended in Colossians 3. We skipped Colossians 4 uh, just for time and all these kinds of things. But uh, Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us, you know, he's describing the new life that we have in Christ. He's giving us a list that describes this new life in Christ. And then he says that all these things are bound together in love. And I think that's a similar, similar what Paul, Paul is trying to say, a similar thing in Colossians chapter 3 as he's saying here. Love is this thing that binds all these things together. All these, these this, all, the, the new life in Christ and all that that means, the list of things that describe that new life are all wrapped up and embraced by this reality called love. Love is one of the few lasting things. 
And so as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's encouragement to us is to make sure that we center our lives on God who is love. Not only in our relationships with our significant others, but also in our communal life together. Because again, as Paul says, if we, could move, if we had the faith that would move a mountain, if we had all the knowledge, and if we could speak in eloquent languages, what good would any of that be without love? To close our, our message this morning, and as a prayer, I want to read again 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the whole chapter. And I want you just to listen real closely, and right after that, we'll do our next steps with our connection cards. But let's just take a moment to, to read this passage again, now with hopefully bigger or greater understanding than we came here this morning. Let these words in this poem ring true in your heart and in your life. If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move the mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give, over my body, give my body over to hardship so that I may boast but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. For love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered and it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. For love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. And now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love.